Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Calix Lewis Renault. He's an author, a producer, a screenwriter, a film director, and a television producer. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Dancing with the Black Dog, a Survivor's Guide to Depression. Uh, he's the author of that book. And we're going to talk about his personal experiences as well. So, Calix, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would tell me a bit about your background and uh, how you got into, you know, TV-related type stuff, and uh, I guess we'll weave in the depression story as well. All righty. So, yeah, I moved to L.A. in 91. Uh, I've been here, so I've been here for a little over 30 years. And in my life, I've done basically three different gigs. Either I've worked in construction, um, I've been a musician, and I've been a writer, and around the turn of the century. And isn't it fun that we can now say turn of the century? Around the turn of the century, I kind of focused on um, movies and television because I figured I needed to, I was all over the map at that time. And that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. I moved into producing um, full-time, writing and producing full-time um, in 2009. So that's what I do. Okay. And how did the idea for the book come about? Um, I don't know how the idea specifically came about, um, you know, I've, I've, I've suffered from major clinical depression. Uh, they, they call that a bunch of different things. I'm still not sure what to call it. Uh, I, all my life, ever since I was a teenager and I'm 60 now. So it's been a, the black dog's been a constant part of my life for half a century now. And um, among other things, I suppose I wanted my, my struggles to have some sort of meaning. And I decided, well, if I can explain to other people how I made it to 60 with a life full of suicidal depression, it might help them. And bring some value out of my so what um what has it been like for you you um does depression come upon you just out of the blue like what what does a um you know a down episode look like for you like i said is constant clinical major depression i'm in a fairly good mood right now um because i get to talk to you which is always fun and but um like earlier today i was uh, just had to, to to wrestle with the black dog some which i try to turn into dancing and try to turn into productivity um, which is what the book's about. Well, what what does that mean? What happens when you get depressed and what uh, coping strategies or skills have you learned to help yourself? Okay, so uh, that's literally what the book is about. And I've been through uh, just about every kind of treatment you can for, for major depression. I spent a 
period of about five years where I was trying different SSRIs. I think I even tried an MAO inhibitor at one point. Lots of various kinds of therapy. Uh, I hit upon that uh, cognitive therapy works for me best, uh, self-talk and regulating that. And um, um, so what I, I mean, I, I have fairly regular suicidal impulses and ideation. That's kind of uh, the black dog that I live with. I have to be careful. So let me back a, back up a little bit and talk about some of what I talk in the book. It'll kind of help explain this. One of the one of the key things that I realized about depression or about my depression, um, the studying that I've done leads me to believe that it's a it, it's a huge uh, biochemical issue in addition to an intellectual. And um, my decided to buy biochemistry is messed up. Um, I, I, there's a hereditary component to it. There's a history of depression in my family, uh, also a history of uh, addictive behaviors, which often goes along with that. And what I realized is that before I knew what was going on, so I'd have this really bad feeling. I'd have a feeling of anger, self-loathing, anxiety, unhappiness, all of those things. And since human beings, we are fundamentally creatures of story, um, that's what brought us to the top of the food chain is our ability to tell stories, recognize patterns, and take from the past and project it to the future. And we believe our emotions have to have meaning. So if I'm feeling really, really horrible, there should be a reason why I'm feeling really, really horrible. If I'm feeling really, really horrible, and the story I tell myself is I feel really horrible because I am horrible and I'm a terrible person, then that's the story that I'm going to act on. Uh, a pastor of mine once said, uh, fairly brilliantly that the suicidal impulse is actually a correct one. It's just aimed in the wrong direction. When you're feeling suicidal, something has to die or something has to change. Something has to be confronted. And in my case, it was the stories that I was telling myself about my screwed up biochemistry, that that my, my brain juice was not behaving like it's supposed to. And as a rational being, I was trying to come up with stories as to why that was. And a lot of it, especially for depressed people, goes into, well, I feel terrible, so I must be a terrible person. I feel anxious, so I must deserve anxiety. Frustration, so I must deserve that in some regard. And we end up reinforcing that story. And one of the more insidious things about depression and other uh, mental difficulties is that um, science has shown that I can literally change my brain chemistry by how I'm thinking. So if I'm thinking, if my brain chemistry is screwed up for whatever reason and I feel bad, if I focus on that and I come up with reasons why I feel bad, I am simply amplifying that bad feeling. And um, one of the fundamental principles of the book is that we emotions are the most fundamental level we live, we exist. It's you know, our, our, our lizard brain, our, our, our brainstem. It's baseline of how we exist. You can work up through the physical, um, uh, the intellectual, and I happen to believe that um, there's a spiritual self as well at the very top. And what I realized I was doing was I was allowing that lizard brain, those emotions to dictate what my story is. And that obviously doesn't make sense. You don't let the lowest part of you tell, tell you what you are. And so the cognitive part of it for me is I'm constantly evaluating my story about, okay, my highest self, my spiritual self with hopes and dreams that wants to behave out of love and community and so forth. What does that say I should be and how does that say I should act? And I use that as kind of a reality check against what the black dog is trying to convince me. Right, so how do you do a reality check when you're in the depths of depression? What do you do? 
Well, uh, well, one of the things that I do is I'll check with other people. Um, I'm married. I'll ask my wife and I'm like, am, am I being a real jerk right now? Am I doing bad and mean things? And she'll go, well, no, like, okay, then obviously that's wrong. Um, one of the, one of the little tricks that I use, um, at night it gets darker. So it gets darker inside. And sometimes I'll be lying in bed and I'll have a really strong suicidal impulse. And rather than trying to fight it, I will kind of pretend like that's another part of me. And I will say, okay, I understand you have this really strong suicidal impulse and it makes total sense right now. Tell you what, I'm going to check with our highest self tomorrow when they come back around. And if they say, go ahead and do it, we'll do it then. But we're not going to do it right now because we don't know if it's really accurate. And that helps me get through the night sometimes. Like, okay, yeah, I'm going to kill myself, but I'm not going to do it till tomorrow. And that's a little, that's one of the many little story tricks that I've learned to play on myself. Um, yeah, I'm sure you've tried all kinds of things to help yourself. What are some of those things and what's been helpful to you or not so helpful in your journey? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little frustrated with uh, pharmaceutical approaches, primarily because as, I'm, as we discussed, I'm a writer, director, musician, and I just, the SSRIs did help ameliorate the strongest depressive symptoms, but they also just killed my creativity. And so you know, a lot of people who do those kind of medications uh, describe what I had, which was a feeling of numbness. And, and, and yeah, I wasn't thinking as much about the dark stuff but I couldn't be creative. And so it was a very, it was a downward slope that was shallower than I'm used to, but there was no up. There was no way to fight my way out of it. So um, I strongly recommend anybody dealing with depression or any other mental issues to not take medications off the table. Um, you just have to understand how to work with them. Um, like I said, for me, the, the most powerful thing tool for me, like I said, is cognitive therapy, which is the self-talk. Um, um, which is, you know, it can be as simple as there have been days when it's like, okay, all I can manage today is to get out of bed. If I get out of bed and eat something, then that's going to count as a victorious day because I don't want to do that. Or, you know, I have to get a shower and go for a walk at least today. And if that's all I can accomplish today, then that is a victory. That is better than I would have done if I not put the effort and learning not to minimize the the, the small victories, the small game. Um, and that's, again, uh, just going back to what the book is, the first like 20 pages are about kind of the overall theory. And literally every other chapter after that is just something you can try to deal with depression from celebrating the small victories, you know, all the way up to the much more complicated stuff. So is there, um, is there no way for you to want to be cured? Or be, no. you know, not feel depression anymore. It's just, you have to live with it. What's your thoughts? You know, it's interesting because I've got, you know, I haven't sold a lot of books and I've had some reviews on it. And the only non-five-star review on Amazon that I've gotten was from somebody who said, wait a minute, I thought he was going to tell me how to cure this. He's just telling me how to live with it. Um, I've gone through uh, periods in my life when it has been much lessened. I've tried a lot of different things, some good, some bad. Um and it's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I've, I've kind of embraced the metaphor of the black dog, which is um, um, an old, old metaphor for, for depression. I most famously used by Churchill. Uh, Dexter, the, the, the TV series, he talked about his dark passenger. And it's sort of that same thing. It's like, okay, I've got this. I don't know if it's going to go away. Nothing I've ever tried has made it go away. And like I said, it's been 50 years of this. Um, I I don't know. I don't know if it's curable in my case or if it's curable in other people's cases. I, I just don't know. 
Um, but whatever it is, I have to deal with it today as it is. So the the best you found is to manage it with all these, you know, this self-talk and these, uh, these tricks that you developed over time. Yeah, boy, it's depressing when you put it like that. <laughs> oh, you know, it, it's realistic. I mean, it, you know, I guess you have a very realistic approach to it. Uh, I know. Have there been times where it really hasn't affected you much and other times where it's affected you a lot? Um, yeah, I once spent, literally spent a year and a half in bed. Uh, basically, I was sleeping 20 to 22 hours a day. Weirdly, I was also uh, taking a college course. So I'd get up, get out of bed, eat something, go go to the class, come back and go back to bed. And um, that was about a year and a half. I have been hospitalized uh, on a 5150, you know, which is when uh, involuntary. And um, like I said, I've been through a lot of different therapies. Um, it, it's weird because it's la- uh, seasonal affective disorder, SAD, which is, uh, you know, the wintertime blues, so to speak. Um, it, it's usually pretty hard for me. And this last winter was, it felt harder than it had before, more difficult to stay motivated and get things done. But I also feel like with the tools I've developed over the years that, I do better in those times. It's like, it, you know, I've, sometimes I think, sometimes I'll have an emotional experience. I'll have a, a, a period of, of deeper depression. And my story I'll tell myself is, wow, actually, if I had gone through this level of depression 10 years ago, I would be behaving much worse. But because I have these tools and, and I have the story that I tell myself, I'm functioning better and I'm getting things done. So, yeah. Again, have there been times where it's been relatively easy to deal with it? I'm sure there's been plenty of times where it's been very difficult to deal with it, but is there anything in your life that um, that makes it worse or easier to deal with that you've identified? Um, being being able to be creative, whether it's in music or writing or filmmaking, you know, I, my happiest place is to be on a set um, as a producer or more, better as a writer-director. Um, that environment I enjoy very, very much. Um, it There is always a sense of one of the weird things about depression for me is that when I am depressed, when it's particularly bad, I cannot evoke the me- even the memory of what it's like not to be like that. But when I am happy and doing well and getting things done, I absolutely can remember what depression is like. And I can absolutely remember what that set of circumstance feels like, what that emotions, what that difficulty is. I have no problem at all remembering what depression is like when I'm doing better. But when I'm depressed, it's incredibly difficult to try to remember. And that's when it becomes, again, an act of will, an act of, okay, this is this is what I am choosing to believe in spite of how I feel. So this is how I'm to behave. Um, you know, it, it, it's weird because a lot of people who get to know me will tell me after they get to them, he's like, oh, wow, you really are depressed because I don't, I try not to project that out in the world. I try not to behave that way. I also try not to let my illness, uh, what what I believe is a true biological defect, to become the dictator of how I'm going to live my life or what I'm going to do or how I'm going to behave. I still, you know, uh, I, I, I try to take moral responsibility for my choices. And if I'm a jerk to somebody, it doesn't matter if I was super depressed at the moment, I was still a jerk to somebody. I'm responsible for dealing with that. And yeah, how do you do that? How do you do that when I would guess when you first experienced depressive states, it was probably incredibly hard to deal with. How did you transition to where even if you're very depressed, you have the wherewithal to at least say, All right, when I'm feeling better, I'm gonna to apologize to this person or, you know, okay, I'm feeling depressed right now, so I'm not gonna make any big decisions or right. You know, whatever it is. How did you get the um the presence of mind when you're in the throes of like a very difficult time to to help yourself 
Um, I, I keep using the word story a lot, um, and that's very fundamental to my approach. Um, you know, th there's a lot of science um, out there about how we interact in the world with the world. For example, um, eighty percent of your vision is colorblind. I don't know if you know that or not. And your brain, as you're looking, your brain is actually filling in a lot of those colors based on what it knows. Um, if if you keep your head looking straight forward, as it's just a quick experiment. Look at the wall in front of you and then just move your eyes really quickly to the left and then back again. If you'll notice, there's a, a quick black spot. Uh, you know, basically your optic nerve shuts down when your eye moves fast because it can't process, your brain can't process that information. So a lot of what we even see isn't real. It's our brain making stuff up based on what it's already experienced. And because my approach to life, my, my approach to art is as a storyteller and I'm fascinated by story. Um, that really dovetailed nicely into cognitive therapy for me, which is, okay, what is the story I want to live? What is the story I want to believe? You know, of, of everything in my story, the, the, the least, the part with the least amount of actual evidence is that they, we have a spiritual self. We have a highest self above and beyond our intellectual self, that, that, that we transcend death, that, that we are spiritual beings. There's very little science to support that. Um, yet that is essential to my story in the moments, it, it's like any other muscle, in the moments when I'm feeling more uh, cognizant, when I'm feeling more uh, less driven by emotions, that's when I can say, okay, what is it that I truly believe? What, who is it that I truly want to be? And I establish that as that's what I'm going to aim for. And so when when my physical self is, is wanting to just feed my appetites uh, for good or for bad, and my emotional self is all spinning off doing whatever it's doing, um, my intellectual self goes, okay, spiritual self says that it knows this is going to happen. And so here are the rules we're going to live by. And yes, we can renegotiate these, but we can't do that until we talk to spiritual self. Now, obviously, I do not exist as four separate beings. And the black dog is not an actual dog that I'm dealing with. These are all just metaphors and ways of looking at reality, ways of looking at my life that are functional for you know one of the one of the quips i came up or i don't know what you call it one of the sentences i came up with in the book was that something is useful insofar as it is true and it is true insofar as it is useful and for me it's that constant re-examining my story because all of our stories are fiction you know like even even our our the things that we see that we think are in color but we're not getting that information. That's a fiction our brains are creating based on reality. And so the question is, what story do we want to live? And how do we determine that? And that's that's how I approach it. It's like, okay, what is the story of Caleb? Who is he? How does he live his life? How does he interact with other people? And if my emotions tell me something different, I can choose to behave otherwise. I mean, again, I, I guess I don't understand how, like if you're feeling really angry, you're depressed, sad, or like you just don't want to do anything and you know, but, but you have to interact with somebody like, you know, let's say your wife or, you know, an outside right. person. I what do you do to, um, to make yourself okay enough to be able to do that? Right. A lot, a lot of it is hard because sometimes I can't and I have to recognize that, you know, uh, there are some nights when I'm just getting angry for no reason and my wife and I are just watching television and I want to snap out of a bunch of things and I'm like, okay, I'm not fit for human company now. So I'll say, I'm going to bed and I will go and lie in bed and not talk to anybody, not do anything. Even, you know, normally I go to bed late. So I don't care. I'm going to bed at eight o'clock tonight. 
and I'm giving you the space. Um, I'll tell you one of the things that I do is I make myself stay up. I, I work from home and my wife works on the home and I stay up late on Fridays and Saturdays just so that she can have mornings in peace. I try not to get out of bed until noon um, just, you know, to protect her from that sort of thing. Again, you know, the book starts with in terms of um, strategies, it was literally um, so the way the book is set up is each chapter is two pages and those two pages are facing each other. So literally you open up the book at random and you're going to open up into a full chapter that is a strategy for how to deal with 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 your life. And literally first very first one is if you can get out of bed, get out of bed. If that's all you can do, that's an acceptable strategy. And the people who I deal with um, more intimately, my my close friends and family, I say, hey, look, I can't do any more than this right now. This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to try really hard not to to hurt people. And it goes all the way through dealing with medications. It goes through um, you know drinking, um, uh, recreational pharmaceuticals, which which I don't use. Um, you know, all the way up to uh, the highest. The best tool is to just get outside of yourself and to feed into other people's lives, do good things for other people, which is what I try to do with my storytelling, you know, and try to create things that help other people to live their best lives. And so anywhere from today, all I can do is get out of bed up to today, I can jump on a podcast and try to explain what goes on in my life. Um, in whatever I can do, I do it. And if I can't do it, I just, you know, step back till I find the simplest thing that I can do to deal with it that day. How have you learned to work with your wife so that when she recognizes what's going on with you, that, you know, you don't, let's say, yell at her and take it out on her? Like, how do you navigate your home situation if you're open to talk about it? <laughs> I am open to talk about it. I, um, I've, I've lived a very strange life, part of which is that um, I was, I, I, I got divorced, I can't remember when, and then about 10 years later, I remarried the same woman. So uh, this is our second time around. We got remarried about six or seven years ago, and um I mean, it's, it's, you know, recognizing when my emotions, it, what's interesting is, is the, the really bad depression is easy to deal with. Because when I'm really depressed, when I'm really having struggles, it's, it's obvious to me, okay, I'm in a really terrible headspace. I've got really crappy brain juice. Just, yeah, I need to protect myself and other people from, it's that kind of in between when I'm feeling good and confident and happy between there and I'm feeling super, super depressed when I'm coming, like coming out of, um, Coming out of the seasonal affective disorder, you know, um, February and March were like, okay, I would find myself doing and saying things and then go, wait a minute, that's me being a, that's me being a jerk because I'm not recognizing how much the negative emotions are driving that. And a lot of it is learning how to apologize, learning how to take ownership and accountability. So yeah, I know what I said and I did. That was wrong. It was horrible. I don't blame it on my depression. I'm going to try to do better next time. I also, um, I give people who are close to me, um, I emphasize to them, I need you to call me out on my bullshit. I need you to, when I am acting badly, I need you to tell me. I don't want you to be nice and pussyfoot around it. And I have um, a small circle of very close people who will do that for me. Like, like, dude, Caleb, you're being an asshole. Stop it. Like, oh, okay. That's a reality. Again, going back to reality checking, you have to have people who you can trust to tell you that. And that, it, takes the power of the intellect over the power of the emotion to be able to do that. And it's a muscle. And, you know, frankly, as a teenager, um, you know, one of the very bizarre things of human development is that men's brains don't really become adults until they're 25. So like basically from the time you hit puberty at 13 or 14 to the time you hit 25, 
you're driving a man's body, but you're trying to drive it with a kid's brain. And um, I didn't know that. And so I made a lot of bad choices and developed a lot of bad habits in those times, some of which I've not been able to overcome, some of which I can overcome sometimes. But again, it all comes back to, you know, if you believe in the highest spiritual self, then you just have to submit to that. And if you don't, then you have to submit to your intellect. Say, okay, my brain, my intellect is smarter than my emotion, you know, and, and I have found that the story of I'm really pissed off because of what's going on in this moment. Um, I've already recognized, okay, wait a minute. This emotional reaction is way too big for this situation. You know, I was fortunate when I was in high school, I had a, a teacher who became a, a lifelong friend who, when I, when I say, oh, I really hate that, he says, man, that's an awful strong emotion to waste on something so trivial. You know, and I, I've thought about that. It's like, I'm really mad at this. Why am I really mad at this? That's an awful strong emotion to react to. And whether it's true or not, that, you know, even even if an argument can be made that that level of negative emotion is appropriate to that situation, I can still accept and invest and create the story of, no, it's not. Um, I don't need to react to that way my emotions are telling me to because my intellect is controlled. My story is that I have shitty brain juice and that's what's causing this terrible emotional state and I am not obligated to behave as if that's the arbiter of reality. What I've seen with some depressed people, though, is if they're depressed and you confront them and you say, hey, you're being a jerk or an asshole or whatever, then they go to self-pity. Oh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't hear a healthy reaction <laughs> like you're describing. How did you get there? And were you, you know, in the beginning when someone told you, like you said, you tell people to call you out on it, but I don't know. I, I, it took, I mean, I, again, it was like that the whole time. And no, it was it, it was not like that the whole time. I mean, I didn't write the book until like 10 or 15 years ago. So it took me 35 years to get to the point where I could even write it down. Like I said, I, um, you know, I've been, they, they popped me in the hospital because I've been a danger and I don't blame them. I'm glad that happened. You know, I've, I've um, been a year and a half in bed. That wasn't a really great choice. You know, it, it's taken me 50 years to get to this point of, you know, constantly dealing with men. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift this just slightly. This doesn't just apply to depression. Like a lot of, a lot of people who don't deal with depression, deal with depression, who've read the book have gone, oh, I don't have to be driven from my emotions. I, I can examine the story by which I lived and I can choose to tell the story that best appeals to my highest sense, whether it's morality, ethics or whatever, or spirituality. It's like, oh, I can not be driven reactively. I can choose who I'm going to be. And it is harder. It's like, um, you know, uh, Schwarzenegger, you know, was didn't come out of the boom full of muscles. The the, the great pianists of, of, have, didn't, you know, didn't come out that way. Whatever you do, it's because of your choices that you're making. And it took, took a long time. And, you know, some days I'm not very good at it. Like I said, sometimes I am a total jerk. And sometimes someone will call me out on something and I'll just pout and stomp around and do a pity party or whatever. But you know, eventually, eventually, I intentionally try to guide myself back to what I think is my highest self to be the best person that I can and to feed into other people's lives so they can be the best person they can. And frankly, regardless of if God is real or there's an afterlife, um, that's a more fulfilling way to live, you know, to try to be my best self and help other people. Ultimately, that's more satisfying. Now, yeah, I'll go, I'll be depressed and I'll go down to the grocery store and get a half gallon of ice cream and inhale that stuff because I train myself that food can help fix this and it does, but it also has 
downsides like type 2 diabetes that I'm now struggling with because I spent so much time using chocolate and sugar as, as a chemical for my brain chemistry. But I'll still, if it's between my diabetes and black dog, I'm beating down the back dog with the ice cream and I'll deal with the diabetes tomorrow. So it's, it's all about the hierarchy of choices that we make. And ultimately, it's recognizing that depression or not, everybody has those choices. A side story about this, um, my, my, my son uh, had, you know, has ADHD um, and he's still dealing with it as an adult. And when he was in high school, they put him on, it was Ritalin first, I think he's an Adderall. And what I told him from my experience is that with my own uh, mental issues is that that medication is not going to solve his ADHD. It's going to give him a slight edge on it, going to like take care of about 5% of it. The rest of it is a matter of will. And I believe very strongly the will. That's where we tell ourselves these stories. And ultimately, it's worth it to me to try to be this person that my higher self wants to be. And that's that's why every day it's the same same process. Do good as much as I can and try to do as little harm as possible. Um, so if you're in a, you know, in a bad way and someone says, you know, can't like you and you're being a real jerk, like, how do you react now? What do you feel and what do you go through when someone says that? What's your mental process? Yeah, you know, a lot of times I will. I'll get, I'll just get flushed with anger and anger will fill my brain. So that's all there is. Uh, sometimes I will say mean and ugly things. Um, um, generally speaking, I, it, like I said, with practice, I've learned to recognize that I've gone there and. First thing I'll do is remove myself from the situation. I'll say, "Hey, you know, I, I've got to, I've got to walk away now." Um, you know, so I don't say or do anything else that's really ugly, whether I mean it or not. And then, you know, brain chemistry doesn't la- doesn't last. It, it always changes. And when I get to the point where I'm like, "Okay, I'm no longer being driven by that anger," what exam self examination was my reaction appropriate emotionally? Probably not. Sometimes it is how I expressed it. Did that do any good for that? You know, I, I, a friend of mine I had an argument with a decade or two ago, and I finally made my point, and they said, you're right. I, I see your point. You're right. But you get to be right. You don't get to be kind or loving or gentle or merciful, but by God, you get to be right. Congratulations. I don't want that. That's not who I want to be. You know, even if, even if I won the argument, I wasn't the person I wanted to be. And so it's constantly revisiting that story of my highest self and taking myself out of that situation as soon as I can recognize it. And again, it's taken practice. It's taken decades of practice and I still mess up, but I'm a little better today at it than I was yesterday. Well, what do uh, friends or your wife say now about, you know, interacting with you? Do they give feedback like, oh, I can see you're really trying. It's a lot better or or is it... uh... You know, yeah. What kind of feedback are you getting? Um, well, I I don't get a lot of feedback strictly on that, probably because I mistakenly have chosen not burden them with being responsible for how I deal with my emotions. Um, so it's only in the in the outbursts or um, the only time other people are aware of it specific or make other people aware of it is in a bad way by having an outburst or in a good way by saying, "Hey, I'm doing," you know, "I'm going to get ice cream because my brain needs it," or "I'm going to bed because I need to be away from it so I don't hurt any." And they're supportive of that. Um, it probably would be wise if I encourage them to give me more of that feedback. Um, but then there's something in me that just feels like that's making it their problem and not mine. And so I'm resistant to it, which is probably something I explore because that seems unhealthy. I mean, you mean sometimes uh, essentially you're like, well, it's not me, it's you, it's your problem, and that's it? Or, um, well, no, what, I'm, what, you, I'm, what, what, what I'm saying, not yours. When I, what I'm saying is that if um, I rely on others very specifically, um, for 
you know, being able to tell me certain things. Um, and they will tell me when I'm behaving in a certain way, but I don't make them responsible for monitor my emotional state and constantly giving me feedback because that that's exhausting. Why would I want somebody else? And, but but what I'm exploring in this this part of this conversation is perhaps I am not relying on others enough to help me in that regard because I don't want make it their make my emotion my reaction to my emotions their responsibility. Um, but they might be able to better feedback. You know, if I were open to that, which I've never really encouraged again, because, you know, I was raised by a Marine. So, damn it, we take that hill. If that's what we're told to do. We shut up and we do our job. And I do have that kind of aspect. Um, and maybe I should do that a little less. So maybe I, this is a conversation I should have with my wife. Is, can we explore how you can give me better feedback for how I'm doing and who I am? Well, like, um, you know, uh, one example is, you know, my, uh, my wife does struggle with depression. And I would say to her, what's wrong, what's wrong, but. I found a better way. So, you know, how are you feeling? And if she says, I'm feeling depressed, I'll say, I'm sorry to hear that. Right. And that seems to work better. It doesn't solve things, but it helps. So maybe yeah. there's something in there that can be done with your relationships that would just, you know, help them one or two percent. Yeah. 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 We, we actually do have that. Um, I have a, I have a friend who is a very strong mentor who also suffers lifelong clinical depression. And the answer in our family is, you know, how do you feel? And the answer good enough means. I'm surviving, but I'm not happy. And so that it, that's the same thing as like, how do you feel? I'm not good. Our, our answer is good enough, which says, you know, it's funny. I actually, last night, um, one of my doctors called me because I'd written something somewhere that made him concerned that um, I might be a danger to myself. And I say, no, I'm not a danger to myself. Thank you for calling. That hasn't happened in a while. Um, like, so like I said, I have, I'm being monitored in some ways. And it just kind of startled me because I haven't, for me to be able to talk one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is very few people will talk openly about this situation, about this illness. Um, and I'd like to think I have some some ability to articulate it. And I try to be as brutally, painfully honest about my own experience. Um, but what I've also found, that means that, especially if I'm talking to a medical profession for the first time, and they say to me, tell me about your depression. I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell you about my depression. But first, you have to understand, I am not a danger to myself or anybody else right now. Because some of the stuff I'm about to tell you is going to be stuff that nobody would tell you unless they were on the very edge. But I have made the choice to tell everybody how this is working for me because people go through this without being able to talk about it. And that sucks. So I figure for, the more I can talk about it, the more open I can be about it, the more it helps other people who are either dealing with themselves or dealing with loved ones we're going through. Okay. Are there any... Um new protocols or things that you're working on that are helpful, but maybe you're not, uh, you're not there yet with their showing promise. Um, I wish, um, no, I, uh, basically the tools that I have, um, I know they work if I will use them. And it's a lot of it is about a lot of my, a lot of my internal conflicts are about not self-disciplined enough to do the things that I know will take me to where I want to be. A really great example about, about that is exercise. I know it is scientifically factual that if I could just push myself through the discomfort of exercising, that I would get to the point where it's triggering happy, you know, and that's that's the whole goal is triggering that happy, the serotonin and dopamine stuff. But I just don't have the discipline to consistently exhaust myself like I need you to get to that. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of tools that work and my life right now is most, um, using the tools to get myself to the place where I can do the work that I love doing. And I find doing the work that I love doing, doing the writing, the filmmaking, the music, 
um, disdain me in a happy place longer than just about any. Um, there is, it's interesting. I, I do see, I've researched a lot of this. So I get a lot of, uh, a lot of things pushed to me by the algorithms online. And, um, you know, I was reading yesterday that, that, um, LSD, which I've always, a lot of people have always pushed that towards me and said, no, but you know, the scientific studies are going, yeah, actually there could be something in it for really dealing with depression. And I'm like, yeah, but my addictive personality is such like, I have a lot of friends who smoke pot. I live in LA and it's, they offer you and I'm like, no, because I'm the person, if I smoke pot today, then on Friday, you're going to be seeing me in the alley giving blowjobs for a hit of heroin. I will dive down that hole, <laughs> you know, at first as fast as I can. So I can't let myself do that. And so the only way I could do a recreational pharmaceutical as a therapeutic for depression would be under the, under the direct control of medical professionals. And I ain't got time or energy. So I'm looking at that going, yeah, that looks really like another thing is that apparently electroshock therapy really highly effective and it's got a bad reputation because I was, it's, you know, it's just not something I can bring myself to embrace or try. Any other uh, protocols like uh, mushrooms or maybe ketamine infusions or you know, other things that you've, uh, you've looked into like transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, any, anything that looks promising? Um, Tangentially, casually, in theory, um, I don't know that I would explore anything like that in practice because the, the, the cognitive work that I've developed over the years uh, keeps me functional and gets me into the place where I can do the things that I need to do. When I have bad brain juice, I just want to do what I can to survive it and, and get out of it. And then when I have energy and focus, I want to spend that on doing the things that I love rather than exploring new solutions. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, can we restate the name of the book? And I guess it's it's everything on Amazon and Kindle and Barnes and Noble and all that. I, I, it's it's on Amazon. I don't know that it's ever gone anywhere else. It's Dancing with mm-hmm. the Black Dancing with the Black Dog: A Survivor's Guide to Depression. Um, uh, I'm trying to figure out how it is. Generally speaking, I'm happy. Uh, I, I'm happy to give away digital copies because it's more important for me to help people. Um, I'm not. I don't think about money anywhere near enough. Um, um, if if Anybody who listens to this wants to get a digital copy. Can you have an email they could email to you that you could forward to me? I'm not, I'm not sure I'm comfortable right now just giving out my email. Uh, is there a way that you have any thoughts on how they could contact me? Yeah, yeah, sure. We can put that in the show notes so that uh, if they want, you know, uh, that, then we can uh, we can pass it on to you. That's not a problem. Sure, perfect. I, I'd be very happy to do that. Yeah, I do give away giving away a lot more copies than I've bought or than I've sold. So okay, well, very good. Calix, thank you so much for coming on and being brutally honest. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're a good example of someone that's that's really working against, uh, it sounds like it's just a, you know, an impossible lifelong uh, difficulty. So I really appreciate you being on this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I hope it helped. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.